This is the Aranaf Pit podcast. Hey, hey, oddballs, welcome to the Odd and Offbeat Podcast, hosted by myself, Mr. Matthew Baker, and the ever-mirthful Louis Fox. He's mirthful before. Damn it. <laughs> Do you change it up every single time? Yeah. <laughs> the ever- Whimsical. We did, we did whimsical. Ever pathetic. peppy. Peppy. How about peppy? I, I went right to pathetic, but I was trying to go the opposite direction. <laughs> Ever peppy Louis Fox. I'm always super peppy. I'm like a trucker at 3 a.m. <laughs> and we are blessed to have a very amazing person in the basement with us. He is a professional speaker, a humanitarian activist, a producer, a writer, a musician, a radio host at Seattle University, Mr. Greg Bennett. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs> this is big, man. I'm at, I'm really excited. I am, for too. You to this be is in, cool. In this the is basement really cool. Here, yeah. man. Reading your Wikipedia page, it makes me feel like I haven't really accomplished anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got bumped down a little bit, my, uh, my ego. Oh, please. My gosh. My we are gosh. probably, Matt and I are probably the only people in this basement that don't have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> the only ones that have been, that have been down. <laughs> every, every guest is like, "Yeah, just read my Wikipedia." I'm like, "You're a garbage man, <laughs> two-time champion, two-time, garbage, two-time champion, the best so garbage on, man." So on Wikipedia. <laughs> so I'm just going to go through this because your Wikipedia page is, reads like sort of like a short autobiography. Can we just have listeners read the Wikipedia yeah, page and we'll go out to lunch and just skip this whole thing? <laughs> I met you, funny enough, like this is how I knew I was uh, in over my head when I was hanging out with you, is I met you at a fair. At, we were both working the fair. You were a juggle, juggling. I was doing juggling also. And you were like, oh, yeah, you know, my punk band is getting back together. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Like I was in a punk band in high school. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, sh- you sent me the picture of you singing on stage and there's like a hundred dudes just like piled on top of you and you're just screaming into this mic and I'm like okay that's like legit he was in a legit punk rock band he's not playing the pizza parlor <laughs> yeah, no, he's not like... <laughs> that's awesome and so you were in the band Trial yeah that's true a punk band here in Seattle that started yep. in the 90s yeah started in the 90s and, and continues technically I mean we, you know, we broke up got back together in 2005 but technically we're still together we played last year around this time in California at a New Age Records 30th anniversary showcase, I guess you'd say. And then we got an offer to play this January at a festival called FYA Fest in Florida. We had to turn it down because one of our members and his wife are having a baby. But the rumor talk is that we're going to see about 2021. So as, as far off as January 2021, wow. there might be a trial show. Like so like, yeah, We might be broken up, <laughs> but... There's they, still you know, a show on the books. You just described trial perfectly. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're testing the water. They yeah, say exactly. Who, when the public wants a show, they do a show. We do a show. Yeah. That's exactly right. As opposed to us when we're just forced on people <laughs> at all times. We're back. <laughs> they're like, we never knew you were existed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I didn't book you. Yes. Why are you at this event? Why are you at my house? <laughs> and what's funny is that I was working a cruise ship maybe about a year and a half ago, and I was talking to one of the sound techs there, mm-hmm. and I, I want to say he was from Serbia or Slovenia or something, and we're just talking about punk rock, and somehow the band Trial came up. No way. And out of nowhere, I was like, oh, yeah, I know I know the lead singer. And he's like, what? But your influence, your music, 
spreads That's very so wide. Awesome. Serbia has always been very good to me. Always, <laughs> always, always very good to me. In the war. So, <laughs> I mean, like really good to me. Like uh, Between Earth and Sky, I have another band, Between Earth and Sky. We played Serbia. I did spoken word shows in Serbia. And Trial has played in Serbia, Novi Sad, and it's just an incredible place with a really supportive hardcore scene. That's so crazy, man. Yeah, it's been even even my spoken show there was like I, I went in thinking, okay, without the band, I'm nowhere. When I'm telling punk rock stories and tying all together with some message or something, and it was at this bookstore, and it was literally packed to the point where people were sitting on like displays like in throughout this bookstore there was there was not room for one more human being in that place when i I spoke so yeah so serbia is cool i love it so is this like trial one of those things that because i know they were popular here in seattle but i think they're like extremely popular in europe is that one of those things where it's like you got more traction overseas most definitely yeah most definitely and i think that in seattle we've had our moments meaning like the reunion show in 2005 was absolute Mm -hmm. mayhem you know, since then, we've played shows that have been much smaller, much, 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 much smaller in Seattle. But there's something about hardcore in Europe that's just very different. People appreciate it differently. And for a while, I was taking this really Americentric, I don't even know if that's a word, approach, thinking these kids just really want American hardcore to come over. Gotcha. And so they celebrate. Oh, but yeah. that's not what it is. Oh. I, you know, it might be a part of that, meaning the world looks to the United States for culture, mm. which is shocking and almost sickening, right? <laughs> but I think it's also that that people there just appreciate art inherently. You know, take, for example, I know this is going to be an off-off left-field kind of example. Take the idea of clown. If you say the word clown to anyone in the United States, they think Ronald McDonald or, like, big nose, you know, big wig, floppy shoes. If you say clown in Germany to somebody involved in the theater, they're going to think of a clown that's theatrically a different creature. Yeah. Right? It's just more refined. There's appreciation for art. And I think that's infused even into punk rock where kids just go crazy over punk rock. And yeah, all the bands have done uh, have done quite well. Uh, Bystander, my newest band, just got back from Europe and we did eight days of touring and it was it was madness. We never expected. I mean, if you had told me I'd be 48 years old singing in a new punk rock band that, you know, we sold out of we sold out of our record at our first show. Like literally we walked into our second show and kids were like, we'd love to buy the new record from Bystander. We're like, we don't have any. We sold out of all of them yesterday in the Czech Republic. Yeah. Like it was yeah. madness. Well, what's amazing to me is your capacity to balance a variety of different things. I mean, here you are on one level, like you're the front man for extremely popular punk rock band but then the next day you're doing uh you know speaking at a a corporate retreat about (laughs) you know leadership and teamwork here's what i learned in serbia (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know you're not showing up with x's on your hands yeah you know that balance has got to be a little bit interesting the the balance these days is is almost even it's trickier and at the same time it's 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 more balanced in a way in that you know yes like literally before i came here i was talking to the bystander guys about this record project that we have coming out and about different stuff going on up in canada with between earth and sky so punk rock punk rock hardcore hardcore and then i'm working on a book about a guy named ernest becker who's a cultural anthropologist and uh 15 years ago my friend and i made a film called flight from death yeah i've seen it it's great awesome awesome so it's about human fear of death on a subconscious level and how that influences human violence so i was hired to write ernest becker's official biography and the contract is up in may and i am so neck deep in reading and writing and thinking about things which are impossible for me to understand at times that it's almost overwhelming so there's sometimes where i'm like 
on stage, hyper-focused, punk rock, mission directive, deliver the message, scream, jump on someone's head. And then other times where I'm reading like four books trying to understand this weird esoteric concept over two <laughs> generations of philosophy. And I'm just like, what's happening in my I brain? I feel like they kind of go hand in hand a little bit. They can. Right? Yeah. They can and they do. Becker would suggest that doing a podcast is is something that helps get you through and helps get you by. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Especially this one. And an I'm, emotional support yeah. podcast. And, and I'm, I'm, you can take us on the plane to Serbia for free. This is literally like... I'm paraphrasing the work of a genius and making it sound like he was a moron, but like it helps you get by. And, and, uh, you know, punk rock too, is not just screaming about, uh, yeah. you know, the president it's, uh, it's, it helps us get by. It helps us get through. Now, so. was there ever like a moment when you're like doing a trial show, like you're just immersed in this sort of punk rock life and then you have to go perform it like a kid's birthday party like the okay next so day, i'll or... give you like actual hard examples of both sides of this yeah. okay so one side of this is having to do a corporate event and having literally just got off stage the night before at a trial show and showing up at a corporate event and having no voice whatsoever <laughs> like literally screaming myself hoarse and then having to show up on stage the next day saying hey how you doing uh, blah, blah, you know and like yeah. trying to be professional right and then the other side of the coin is showing up at a corporate about two years ago and doing this a presentation and I get off stage and infused in my presentation were references to punk rock and mm. hardcore. So I just thought, how long can I separate the two? Meaning yeah. for years I separated the two and, and I'm, I'm tired of doing that, right? Mm. So I get off stage and I walk away and this guy comes up to me and he's in a, a suit that I couldn't possibly afford. And he says to me, um, tell me something. Uh, do you know the band so-and-so? And he names this quite famous punk rock band. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. He's like, well, so-and-so who plays bass is my cousin. And this guy was like 65 years old. He's like, yeah, my little cousin plays in this That's punk awesome. band. He's like, so I loved your presentation because, and he starts naming all these famous punk rock oh, nice. events, which yeah. happened now, like he and I are really connecting. And I'm like, oh man, this is the future. I need to like do more punk rock corporate events. <laughs> I think there's a market to like the, oh, no, the, for the sure. punk rock motivational speaker. 100%. <laughs> oh, I imagine, you know, you're trying to infuse some sort of uh, something a little different into your absolutely. company. Yeah, Imagine absolutely. That's, is that the angle that you go for it's, when you it, go and speak? To it's it's an angle for sure. And it's like part of the thing is that, like I said, for years I tried to separate the two and I tried to make it so that I was the squeaky clean, clean cut corporate guy. And then I was the punk rock guy with all my integrity and authenticity and what what have you. It tore me to pieces because I would show up at these corporate events and be like, hey, so funny juggling. Yeah. And I would hate the guts out of every single yeah. moment of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just yeah. felt so inauthentic. Yeah. So before we started recording, we were joking about branding and whatnot. And I made the joke of like, who knows where my brand is now? And it's, I'm in the middle of a rebranding that's not a branding, meaning I'm just like, strip you away the branding. The brand. Strip yeah. away like, the branding. Yeah, yeah, I'm sick of the branding. It's like, you want odd stories? Let's talk about people who brand themselves as something they're not. Yeah. That's like inherently yeah. anti human. Totally. You know, what are we doing? So yeah, I've definitely had those moments where. <laughs> literally like rubbing the you know like in, the x's off my hands as i walk into a corporate event. You know, in, in hardcore in straight edge there's a, a, a subset of hardcore called straight edge and i'm paraphrasing where people who don't drink and don't use drugs draw these giant black x's on the backs of the hands and in ink and it stemmed from the early 1980s in washington dc where there was a lot of nihilist punk rock happening and venues simultaneously just happen to write a little X on the back of your hand if you weren't old enough to drink. Ah. A small group of kids said, you know what? We are not old enough to drink and we don't want to drink. We don't want to be part of that nihilism. Yeah. We want to be 
clear thinking were calling yourself straight edge and they would draw their own X's before they showed up at these events as if to say, you don't need to mark my hands, dude. Like I'm not drinking your alcohol. So because I'm straight edge and I don't drink, I oftentimes, you know, when bystander or trial plays, uh, will mark X's on the backs of my hands. But then again, it's the next morning. I'm at a corporate event. I'm in a suit. I'm like trying to rub the X's off because I haven't showered because I haven't eaten in a day and a half on tour. It's just madness. I so, love it. Do you ever roll into like the same theater? Like, the night before you're playing a trial and then you go in for the Amazon corporate event. <laughs> At the same venue? Yeah. That hasn't happened yet, but that would be great if it did. I would you're love trying that. To sell, I love that conversation. Like when I try and sell my show in the oddities, it's always an unusual conversation, but yeah. you're like, I got this punk rock band and I do like this, uh, you know, <laughs> motivational. Speaking. My, my band can play your opening gala <laughs> and I can be your keynote. <laughs> I love it. That would be great. So you, so what what are you focused on right now? You're doing the book the right book. now. It's You're... really about the book. Okay. And, and so literally between when I get, when we get done here, I'm going to go play video games at Flip Flip Ding Ding, yeah. the, uh, the arcade yeah, down yeah. in Georgetown with a friend of mine for an hour. And then I'm going to read books until April um, with one <laughs> break. Well, I'm glad you, you <laughs> slipped us in and some. It's uh, video games. It's a, I have a Galaga out there. That's, <laughs> that, that's what we'll do next. We'll do Galaga. <laughs> then I'll go play games. Um, but I'm reading, I'm reading and writing until, until the end of April with one break. I'm doing a spoken word tour in the punk rock hardcore community uh, throughout Australia in, in uh, November. So other than that, I'm literally just focused on the book right so now. So when you do spoken word, I don't know exactly what that is. Is it sure. like more like poetry slam? Is it more like so a, this is a stream a, of consciousness? Your, is it... your question rules. And the reason it rules is because if I had half a brain, I would listen to that question and let it really sink into my mind and, and use it. And here's why. Here's why. It's because... Everyone asks exactly that question mm. exactly that way when they say, so what is spoken word? Is it like poetry? Is it like stream of consciousness? Literally, as soon as you start asking, I, I was sitting here going, I wonder if he's going to ask about poetry and stream of consciousness. <laughs> Everyone does that. So I should be using that thinking like, how can I, how can I use that to like proactively let people know what it's all about? Yeah. Right. So, yes, there are some times where it's most definitely stream of consciousness. There's a few times where I have spoken pieces towards a theme mm. that are prepared. Yeah. But then other times it's stories from life and the road and touring and whatnot gotcha. that get infused towards a theme overall. And then other times recently it's taken this other kind of really unusual approach. Like when I was in Prague, I did an event. I had a young guy in Prague ask me, would you come and do, since you'll be in Europe and in the Czech Republic, do a spoken word show? And for whatever reason, I, I wasn't feeling it. And I just didn't want to have it be the Greg Bennett show yet again. So I was like, what if we did an event called From Suffering to Survival and invited the public, not just punk rock kids, but the public to talk about some way that they have suffered and one thing they have done to help them survive It's amazing. That. I didn't know who was going to show up. Like, I didn't know if it was going to be like one wingnut guy and like his friend, you know, because that happens sometimes, you know, when you give people a chance to speak, you never know who's going to show up. There was a bunch of people. I mean, there's like 20 some people, which was a lot yeah. for an event which called upon people to kind of extract painful experiences from themselves. And by the end of it, it was really cathartic for people. It's amazing. Yeah. And I thought I need to be doing yeah. more of this, like totally. this, more so than so once I was on tour. Facilitating and, uh, blah, 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 a space you know? that people yeah. can, you know. That has value to me. Yeah. That is real. That says that says real value. It's kind of so. like the uh, the moth, which I also mm. have seen that you've participated in. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Do you know what the moth is? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I so just yeah, posted. Like... I just posted about that an, an hour or so ago. In 
Seattle, there are many moth events, mm. right? I won one of them in December. Man, you got to update your Wikipedia page. I have page. to. I feel so, like I'm. Uh, so that that I'm not giving you proper no, no, no. here. Well, no, I just posted on Facebook. You, it's okay. I mean, you're probably doing something with your morning other than the internet, right? But you really they, wasn't. They, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yes. They just announced the Moth Grand Slam, which is the Seattle kind of championship of moth what they call uh, story slam winners. So myself and nine other story slam winners will compete at town hall, October 25th for the grand slam Sweet. championship. Dude. So and then yeah. the night before trials. Play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, the night, night, night morning after you're speaking of yeah, the Gates like, foundation, what's up, everybody Trials going to do a gorilla show to disrupt the story slam. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Yeah. Like I'll try to speak first and then trial plays like really loud outside, disrupting all the other speakers and I win. <laughs> So yeah, the moth is the moth is really cool, and the moth is open to anybody. You don't have to be a storyteller or a speaker. I mean, anybody who's got a crazy, odd, weird, bizarre story. Basically, what happens is each moth event has a theme. Uh, this one is uh, like something like stepping stones or building blocks or something like that, and they'll announce the theme somewhat last-ish minute, like a, a few weeks beforehand. And the idea is that every speaker who shows up and drops their name in the hat to speak has to match that theme somehow. So okay. and it's open to anybody. Yeah, it's pretty fun. So one thing that I found that is not on your Wikipedia page. Ooh, I'm excited about this. Aside from winning the story slam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You lost to Patrick Dempsey in a juggling competition. Oh, is that true? I probably did. I did, probably well, he did. I think you competed against him. Okay, this in, is probably true. In I'm the International in the, Juggler's Association. I competed in the juniors yeah. in 1986 and 1988. In 1986, I placed fifth out of seven, and I don't remember who won that year, but it might have been Ken Falk won with Robbie Weinstein second. And then in 1988, I placed fourth out of 16 competitors. Jason Garfield won that year, and I can't remember who else placed, but maybe... I think it was the juniors one that Patrick Dempsey beat you. No, this is all the juniors. Yeah. This is all before oh, okay, I, was, gotcha. I was 17 and under. Yeah, wow. yeah. So... Yeah, so that's cool. You could add that. I could add that, yeah. So that, <laughs> that could have been awesome. your career trajectory. <laughs> well, it could have been, but I haven't, I haven't thought about the juniors in years, but this was a career-changing moment. So up until... 1988 I was fancying myself to be this like this like technical juggler and mm. you know and whatnot and I decided to compete in the juniors and this was a game changer for me because I remember leading up to the juniors I practiced pretty hard but not hard enough to win like mm. not even close enough to win and I came out on stage and I dropped a few times and had some pretty majestic drops like ball bouncing with the balls bouncing into the audience uh -huh. type of thing you know yeah 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 almost demoralizing like, drops demoralizing yeah. unrecoverable <laughs> yeah. like I want oh, a new career brutal. I hate myself yeah. kind of drops in the aftermath of that, I remember thinking to myself, I got to change my entire approach to my entire life. Like, I, I can't approach things so half-assedly yeah, that yeah. I don't, that I'm like, oh, cool, I placed fourth out of 16. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, granted, the three people who beat me, I remember were better, but maybe not. I remember that there was a kid, like a little kid who placed third, so I should have beaten him. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> but but like Jason Garfield, I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. he won, right? Uh -huh. So he was a monster. He was unbeatable. But still, I should have tried harder, and that was kind of the takeaway, was like, why did I only half ask this, you know? So yeah, it was a game changer. And then I, I started rethinking like, do I really have it in me to be this outlandish technical juggler, uh -huh. you know, cause it takes. And that rage from the loss, you filtered into your first punk rock That's song. That's exactly right. <laughs> first punk rock, so many drops at IJA. <laughs> and now I'm well known in Novi Sad, Serbia as a so, result. But I want to talk to you real quick about Flight from Death. Okay, sure. So this was your first documentary that you did. Yep. And it has won a ton of awards. Yeah. 
it did and, really well. And it was um, narrated by Gabriel Byrne. Uh-huh. Um, from, do you know who he is? The Usual no. Suspects. From The oh. Usual Suspects. He's yep. in, from Vikings. He was yep. in the first season of Vikings. What else was he on? Miller's the, Crossing. Yeah, Miller's Crossing. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So I produced that film and, and wrote it along with my friend Patrick Shen in California. And uh, it was produced by Transcendental Media, Patrick's company. And we partnered on that. So we both produced it, both wrote it, and Patrick directed. And I think the website's still up at flightfromdeath.com if people want to find out more. But it, yeah, it's about human fear of death based on the work of a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker. And Becker's work is infused throughout the film. And mm-hmm. we're basically trying to understand why people kick the crap out of each other on a global scale what's the psychology behind violence and what was the uh what did you, the conclusion that you came to it's what all jugglers it? and magicians yeah. <laughs> basically it's like because we exist trying to bring mirth into the world whimsy that uh it just causes endless pain yeah i would i would think that's true so yeah. i see the faces of my audience i, I was at my last exactly. show <laughs> yeah, I, yeah i've seen you guys perform I, I walked away feeling no documentaries deadly. are being made <laughs> no but Be- becker's work in a nutshell and again like i'm paraphrasing a ton of on a ton of work, right? But basically, Becker recognized that humans, like all other animals, fear death on an innate level. Meaning, if we're walking down the street and a truck is barreling toward us, the squirrel will jump out of the way, hopefully, as will we, hopefully. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that the squirrel runs right back out in the street, not thinking and rationalizing mm-hmm. about the experience. Whereas we say, okay, with, with imminent death approaching in the street situation, we need to stay in a basement and do podcasts where yeah. we're safer, yeah. right? We need to remind our girlfriends, partners, spouses, you know, not to run out in the street like a squirrel. Maybe we put up a, uh, we invent something called a crosswalk and that prevents death. So Becker's suggestion is that we create cultural manifestations and also aspects of our personality, which are, are basically buffer zones against our, our fear, mm-hmm. our innate fear of death that make us feel more permanent. Now, you know, as, as people listening to this are like, yeah, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. I've just given a <laughs> one sentence version. But, but basically, here's where this goes wrong for us is let's say the three of us as a cultural value feel that performative dynamics in a theatrical setting are life enhancing. Okay. And we present that to the world. And I Mm -hmm. think that we all feel that like when we're on stage and when we're in an audience, like I want to be watching you guys perform. Mm -hmm. Right. So what happens when we come up against a group of people for whom the idea of performance is terrifying and who feel awkwardly uncomfortable in a performing setting and they would love to have theater banned. I'm Mm -hmm. being like, uh, I'm going off the deep end with the example, but they're on the the front of, you know, hashtag band theater, the movement, Uh right? You know, we're getting something life enhancing out of this. They're getting something life enhancing out of their mission. What happens when these two cultures, and again, I'm oversimplifying, what happens when these cultures collide? Here's another example that's even more relatable to most. You know, what if what if you feel as though making money is the highest order of being and it makes you feel like your life is going to last forever because you can buy your way out of death, essentially. And then there's another group of people who feel as though a life enhancing their life enhancing illusion, for lack of a better word, is to fly planes into the side of the building where you work. Mm -hmm. What happens at that intersection? I mean, and I use intersection, not meaning planes colliding into buildings, but the psychological intersection of a clash of death, assuaging fear, assuaging you know, ideologies. This is, this is where human schism, human violence sort of resides. So Flight from Death looks at that and Becker's work looks at that. And this is what I think about all day long when I'm not <laughs> sitting here with you guys. <laughs> and when you're not uh, spending an hour playing <laughs> flip, flip, ding, ding, yeah. trying to get a high score on the monsters. No, no it's, it's so true though. But it's like, it's like my life is this weird balance between like literally sitting around thinking about this work, which I honestly feel unlocks a lot of keys to human violence and then simultaneously needing to just chill 
out and play video yeah. games at Flip Flip Ding Ding. Like yeah. it's like it's like well, you got to do it. It seems like a lot all your pro- projects are pretty intense and they involve quite a bit of oh, uh, oh, totally. bandwidth on your yeah, on your part. And so yeah. I would imagine when it is time to chill, it is like checked out. Yeah, like I, no, totally. I'm gonna play some '80s retro. Yeah, you know, Miss Pac Man and oh gosh, you nailed it with the Miss Pac Man. I was there like <laughs> literally there a couple weeks ago. I His think eyes that, got wide. I think like five dollars <laughs> got dropped in the Miss Pac Man a couple weeks ago. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm just amazing your capacity to sort of, I mean, something we haven't even talked about, which is your, your Haitian project. Oh yeah. 100 for Haiti. Sure. And just the amount of things that you are doing, I'm just like, God, like I can barely write a joke every (laughs) day for my show. Okay, but there's, I can barely have compassion for my child. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's actually true. He's very good at that. But there's something about it though, right? So there's some, there's something like I, it would be very easy for me to sit here and be like, well, thanks guys. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but you know what? I keep it going because all the stuff I do is meaningful. I actually think there's some psychological component. Like, why is it that you just listed 11 things that I do that every single one of the things that you listed, I go, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yep. Yep. I do that. Yep. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I got it. Yep. And I'm thinking about the to do list in my mind for each one. There's there's like a therapist waiting with like waiting for my bank account to be drained in the conversations <laughs> I need to have as to why it is that I'm doing all these things. That's, well, did, when you were making flight from death, did any of that kind of cross over into your own perspective? Like, oh, oh wow, God. like I'm operating in this way because I fear not making an impact in the time that I'm here. Totally. People would ask often, like, what did, what did, what does learning about Ernest Becker's work do for you in terms of, does it make it easier for you to contemplate death or does it make it harder? And while Becker and and the people who have kind of done empirical research to substantiate his claims are talking about subconscious anxiety about death, not conscious. Yeah it's made it harder and easier. Like making flight from death made me feel like, wow, we're actually encapsulating this in a way which is going to make sense for people. And at the same time, it made me think, wow, I just spent all the money I have in the world making this documentary. Where is this going to go? And then I'm like rabbit hole brain. I'm like, okay, if this isn't going to go anywhere, then where's my relationship going? And why do I even wish my parents happy birthday? Because they're going to die eventually. And like, <laughs> then like, they won't remember. Right. They're, they're going to be dead, right? And then I'm going to be dead in a certain number of decades. Yeah. Name one person yeah. who was alive in 1911 other than the president. I'm like, none of us matter. I'm screwed, yeah. right? Yeah. So then down the rabbit hole yeah. I go. So, so it did a little I, of both. Yeah, that's got to be a fine line to walk. It's like you open it a little bit and you'd be like, holy shit. It's, it's yeah. endless. Yeah. It's endless. And I'm telling you, like literally this morning, I'm reading Becker's work thinking, whoa, oh my gosh, that's like so huge. And, you know, I don't need to even go into whatever concept I was reading about. I'm like, my God, that's amazing. And then I thought about this podcast. I'm like, oh, thank God I get to see my friends and talk <laughs> about like, like, can I get back to the book? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, we, did, we only ask you questions about the book. <laughs> It'd be so awesome if like you had forecast that and just been like, so when Becker refers to Nietzsche in chapter two of whatever, I'd be like, no, I can't take anymore. And then in this manuscript I hacked into of yours, <laughs> you appear to have a writer's block on page four. That's the copyright page. Yeah, exactly. You haven't gotten past the table of contents. Could you talk about your anxiety as a, as a writer? You haven't gotten past the one blank page at the beginning. <laughs> and and so I'm just going to skip through towards the end of the, your page here, where it's the World Leaders Project, which it sounds like you're setting up sort of meetings between different world leaders this was this was years ago but it was a really cool concept and i would love to bring it back sometime but but the global dynamic is slightly different what the idea was was that world leaders this all stemmed actually out of out of a conversation that a Bakarian scholar was having in the year 2000 you six words that i don't know okay let, let me translate it in english doesn't on my me watch guy speak <laughs> yes so this 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 still two words <laughs> 
this guy was speaking about Becker's work in in 2000 during the Bush Gore who won the election fiasco yeah, yeah. for for those old enough to remember it. But um he was saying something about I wish we could just write to them Bush and Gore and let them know that their aspirations towards the presidency are rooted in death anxiety or something. I went up to this guy after the, his talk and I said, why don't we write to them and ask that and write to every world leader and ask them the same question. Like your aspirations towards power are rooted in your own psychology. Mm. How does that affect the way you govern? So we wrote, and this guy was, his name's Sheldon Solomon. He's, he's a genius. He's at Skidmore College in New York. And he was like, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. So we wrote to every leader, every country on the planet, invited ourselves to come speak with them. We got two invitations nice. from the governments wow. of Belize and Guyana. And that was right before September 11th. So the, the meeting in Belize was supposed to be September 14th, 2001, mm-hmm. and got canceled because there was no flights as of uh, the 11th, 12th. There was still no flights, maybe the 13th. But by the 14th, you couldn't guarantee yeah. you're getting out of yeah. the country. Um, but we did go to Guyana and speak with the president, then President um, Bharat Jagdeo of Guyana. And since then, we wrote another round of letters a couple years later. But the global dynamic has shifted a bit. In 2001, pre 9-11, you could write to world leaders and be like, hey, I'm Greg. I want to come speak yeah, with you. And yeah. they might or might not say That's yes. So crazy. But now it's like security, a number one of concern, course. right? Yeah. So it's a different dynamic. So we got to figure out another approach. But yeah, I still have my mailing list. So what was your, <laughs> your world leader? Half these people have been ousted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've kept it up to date as of a couple of years ago. No, but when I first looked at it. got Marcos on there. When I first looked at it, I was like, oh my God, there's, I mean, these people are all gone. But yeah, I updated it. I actually, I think I hired somebody to update it at one point. But yeah, I should do oh, that. Oh, you should every... absolutely do it. Absol- no, yeah. absolutely. No, well, I, mean, what, I love what, the idea. What did you glean from your meeting with the uh, president of Guyana? So it was interesting, right? So we met with him. And uh, what was fascinating was the lack of security as we met with him, um, To just to start that off. Like we literally, we went up to the, the front of the presidential palace, as it were, when we were in, in Guyana and said, we're here to talk to the president. They're like, okay. I don't even think they checked IDs. <laughs> They're like, I think... keys under the mat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, but we... Lock up when you leave. <laughs> yeah, he'll... Be... Yeah, but we could, walked. While you're in there, could you make him lunch and, <laughs> and guard him? Exactly. It honestly wasn't too far from that, but it was more slightly more official. What was cool though was we sat down with him and we'd prepped him on on uh, and his handlers about what was going to be coming in the meeting. And what we got out of the meeting was the fact that uh, it's really hard for these ideas to penetrate. And as soon as you say to somebody, death anxiety is affecting the way you blank, yeah. people get defensive of immediately. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he kept talking about poverty and kept talking about race. And our invitation was to consider that poverty and race are rooted in part by human aspirations related to death anxiety. Not to oversimplify, not that it's the only thing that's going on, but just to consider it as an option, you know, that... You know, as we try to achieve personal glory, somebody suffers as a result. Yeah. That's always true. Yeah, yeah. You know, as as we fill our tanks with gas, somebody suffers. As yeah. we do anything, somebody suffers. So to consider that, and he said that he would consider it. You know, and that's yeah. all you can hope for. Yeah. I mean, we took pictures. And well, I'm sure it's it. like something that he might not have thought of beforehand. Maybe it, it didn't absorb, but at least, yeah. you know, you got to say it. He heard it. Totally. You know, Absolutely. someday he's like, maybe it will connect. Maybe like Absolutely. 10 years from now, he's like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. So I'm going to add that to my to-do list, a revival of the World Absolutely. Leaders Project. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm into it. <laughs> Yo, no, I'm into, I am way into that. That's amazing. It's great. I don't want to take up all your time. You but... can take up all the time. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, do you have any sort of weird stories from either on the road with the punk band, either doing your juggling show, speaking. Uh... The first one that comes to mind is I had gotten hired years ago 
to do an event for Bank of America in Las Vegas. And I flew in to Las Vegas um, with my agent at the time. And we landed and there was going to be a, a party. This is in the mid 90s, a party for like 3000 people, an outside picnic. And we land and her cell phone, as soon as she turns it on, goes ballistic. And it's the sound guy. And he's screaming, you got to get over here. There's a tornado or oh, something geez. like that. So we get over to the site and not a tornado you gotta, in Las Vegas. You got to come to where the tornado is. <laughs> yeah, right? Come here. Come here. Come here. You must die with me. Yeah. Get on this. Yeah. So we get there and some like dust twirling storm of some kind, dust devil or whatever you call it, had touched down literally on the outskirts of this venue, swept across the stage, uprooted and destroyed the stage and upended seating as 3,000 people were in line waiting to walk in for this giant barbecue. Jeez. And they handed us paychecks and they just said, enjoy. That's the Vegas, yeah. but you know, show disrupted they, by they pay you in chips, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Have a hot dog and see you on your way. But uh, you know, have it like having a tornado disrupted gig. I mean, like everything has happened, right? Yeah. You know what it's like, yeah. literally everything. Yeah. But then I, you know, I think about punk rock, and it's the same too. Just like you know, having people almost strangle a band member. I mean, it's it's like endless. It's it's, it's ridiculous. But all right, let's let's narrow your focus. We were chatting okay. about Morrissey earlier. Okay, okay. What's your weirdest Morrissey story? Okay, got now, it. He had about seven odd Morrissey <laughs> stories earlier. Okay, so Morrissey himself is you know he's at this point the most controversial guy in music, right? Without a doubt. And but when when Morrissey was pre controversy, or rather, when he was uh, more just uh, just still just an icon, you know that everybody wanted to just you know get closer to and scramble towards. My girlfriend and I at the time saw him at House of Blues in in Boston, and we were right up close, right at the edge of the stage. We both touched Morrissey o- over the course of the show and held his hand. And but this was her dream. This was her dream, right? Yeah. This is on her bucket list. This is you know, on some her bucket people list. want to you know go to the Taj Mahal. She, she wanted, wanted to, to meet more. She, she wanted to do a sexual so, assault Morrissey. <laughs> but, I mean, she held his hand and I held his hand and we got to, you know, because it was my left hand and hers. We got to hold Morrissey hands for the rest of our failed relationship. <laughs> but but what was cool is that she wanted to meet Morrissey. Well, at one point, and this isn't the story even that I'm going to tell, but at one point there was silence at House of Blues and she yells out, we love you, Morrissey. And he sort of looks down at her and says... I know. <laughs> and I said to her, you just had a conversation with Morrissey. Like that was a yeah. gen, that was an yeah. actual conversation. You spoke with Morrissey. So, but the, the story that I remember that was odd was that at the end of the, the night, he comes back on for an encore and they play a Smith's cover. Uh, There's a light that never goes out and, and they play the song. And at the end, the drummer stands up and throws his drumstick into the audience. Okay. So as the drumsticks flying toward me, I thought to myself, I will murder everyone to get that drumstick. <laughs> and I jump up in the air and somebody, I mean, 15 people jump up in the air. We all grab the drumstick. So the drumstick comes down. And you've seen this happen at concerts where, you know, people start wrestling for the stick, right? Oh, okay. I've been going to hardcore shows since I was 15 years old, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have, you know, not just been stage diving, but as you joked about before, I mean, I've literally been piled on by a hundred yeah. people. There was one show in particular where I remember trial played a club called the showcase in Corona, California. And the pile of kids that was, was so high, literally as I was laying on my back on stage, <laughs> the pile of kids laying on top of me was so high that our then bassist, Brian Redman, who himself was six foot two later told me, he said to himself as he was playing that the pile of kids was taller than him. And he said to himself, well, Greg's dead. And he just kept playing the show. <laughs> they just keep going. They're like, hey, yeah. we don't need a front man. Yeah, yeah. You know, he just literally like that's a seven foot type 
high pile of human bodies on Greg. Greg could not survive, so I'll just keep playing. Um, I've been in these situations. So as I jump up and that drumstick is in the air and we both and we all grab onto it, I said to myself, everyone is coming to the floor with me. I'm getting this drumstick no matter what. And I literally started raging. It was like no mercy. Like I'm thrashing around like it's the like the mosh pit of the decade. And of course, everyone around me is a Morrissey fan. So they're all like, what's going on? What are you doing? But there's people holding on for dear life. And I'm like, I there was it got down to me and one other guy. And, and that was uh, your, that was your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. But I, I this guy, I was like, I'm taking this guy to the floor. And I literally wrenched him around and dropped all my weight down and we went to the floor. And I always remember this girl screaming, What the F are you doing? Like screaming, like, what are you doing? And I got the stick away and it's like sitting at home here in Seattle now. I got the drumstick, but I had to take out half of Morrissey's fan base to do it. <laughs> You can never show your face at a Morrissey show again. Yeah, that's why I'm not going tomorrow night. I'll get murdered. There's a little sign in the sign, back. Sign, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Do not throw drumsticks to this guy. Or, or just like, we're searching for this guy, right? Yeah, well, when you go into a Morrissey show, there's like a sign that says, no meat is served in this building. Yeah. And Greg Benick is not It's welcome. not allowed. <laughs> not allowed 10 feet from the stage. So, yeah. that's that's When I think of Morrissey, I think of that drumstick for There's a Light That Never Goes Out and this poor guy with broken bones somewhere in Boston who was second Tells in line a for different it. story on a podcast about the time that yeah, this yeah. dude jacked <laughs> <laughs> his one chance to get his drumstick for his kid. All right, cool. Um, so, yeah, man, we want to thank you so much for coming in. Where should people look? I mean, you have a, a plethora of things to check out. Where should they just follow all your projects at? Is there Wikipedia? A- yeah, yeah, I guess so, evidently yeah. so. It's slightly out of date, right? But, I mean, the best thing to do, I think that I keep in touch with people on Facebook, of course, which is just facebook.com forward slash Greg Benick, G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K, and then Instagram at Greg Benick, but also gregbenick.com, which is my website. I update that with the blog section from time to time, and I'm in the process of redoing a bit of that. But I mean, yeah, people can get in touch with social media all the time or just email me, my name at gmail.com. Ask me what's going on. Tell Sweet, me a Morrissey man. story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right world leaders with you. Exactly. Yeah. Come on over and address envelopes. It'd be fun. <laughs> update uh, update uh, his mailing list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not writing, Dear President Bush. <laughs> hey, that might be interesting still. Yeah, I mean, no, that'd be an interesting conversation. No, I've, I've thought about that. I've thought about writing to former world leaders, you know, who's, you know, because in the United States, access to former presidents is not as easy. They're, they're, they get secret yeah, service coverage yeah, for life yeah. but still writing to some of them and I've written to Bill Clinton because interestingly enough I, you know, we talked about Ernest Becker before Bill Clinton was asked his list of his top 10 or top 20 most influential books when he was in office and uh, number 3 or 4 was The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker oh wow so I've written to him and asked him about that I've not heard back of course so oh sure when you come out with your book you gotta send it to absolutely. him absolutely oh, oh 100% I would love, yeah. I would love Carter. to Carter yeah. you gotta get to Carter oh Carter's the man Carter. Carter's yeah. the man I mean yeah. like he's 90,000 years old yeah. and still well, building houses I did houses. a girl that grew up like four houses away from him in Georgia and he would just ride his bike over to their house and borrow eggs and go back. Unbelievable. I, I, bet he's, I bet you could totally talk to this him. This is like the picture that circulated last year in Seattle. Bill Gates standing in line at Dick's drive through waiting in line for a burger and fries on Broadway yeah. last year. He's just standing there in, in jeans. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, I could buy this entire city. And instead, I'm just waiting for my fries. Yeah, you know? and waiting in line. And waiting too. in line. Like a normal, like well, a normal person, man. That's the great equalizer is the post office and Dick's driving. <laughs> You're waiting in line. There's no way around it. We don't care who you are. We don't, we don't have health care, but we do have to wait in line, just like you. 
<laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming in. And anywhere, anything coming up that is that people should check you out? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on this book of Becker, so okay. keep in touch about that. But I'm doing a spoken word tour in Australia, so if you happen to have any Australian listeners, Hell's I'll yeah. be we're, we're in Australia. We're huge in Australia. Yeah, Are you? Yeah, 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 yeah no, massive. I get that. No, I, I get that feeling <laughs> from like the Novisad. Yes, Novisad like... Serbia experience. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing that, and then quite honestly, other than that, I'm going to be in Seattle for uh, for most of the next half a year, reading and writing. So I'll wow. be I'll be around. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for today, folks. We want to thank Greg for sitting in the basement and uh, sitting through our weird questions. And you can check us out online at oddandoffbeat.com. We're on all the social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So half of the social media. <laughs> be sure to check out Louis Fox at louisfox.com. I'm comedystuntshow.com. I want to thank you so much for listening, folks. We hope you have a weird week. We are out. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Odd and Offbeat podcast. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast.